If you'd like a title for this morning's message, I've called it Crowd or Called. And we're going to read from verse 7 through to the end of verse 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagines, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Lord, you have encountered us in song. And Lord, now would you encounter us in your word. Would you bring these words alive to us so that they don't just be two scenes of the crowd and the called, but they be, they be words that minister to our very souls, that change our lives. So by the time we leave today, we are built up in the faith, we are freshly amazed with who you really are, and freshly understanding of the relevance of this passage to us. Lord, Holy Spirit, only you can do that. So have your way amongst us in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In his book, Playing for Keeps, a book which is all about the famous basketballer Michael Jordan, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author David Halberstam begins the book somewhat surprisingly by taking us to Paris, France, is what he says. Paris, October 1997. In the fall of 1997, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, once of Wilmington, North Carolina, and now Chicago, Illinois, arrived in Paris, France, with his team, the Chicago Bulls, to play a preseason tournament run by McDonald's, one of his principal corporate sponsors, as well as a very important corporate sponsor of the NBA, the National Basketball Association. Even though it had featured some of the better European teams, the tournament was not, in terms of the level of play, likely to be competitive for a top NBA team like the Bulls. Nor was it supposed to be. It was part of the NBA's relentless and exceptionally successful attempt to showcase the game and its star players in parts of the world where basketball was gaining in popularity, particularly among the young. The Bulls arrived to play for the Hamburger Championship of the World, and as they often did begin these days, with all the fanfare of a great touring rock band, They were the Beatles of basketball, one writer had said years before. And in fact, they even flew over in the 747 normally used by the Rolling Stones for their tours. 
There had been a time when Michael Jordan had regarded France as a kind of sanctuary, a place where he could vacation and escape the burden of his fame, sitting outdoors in front of a cafe, savouring the role of an anonymous tourist. His appearance on the Olympic Dream Team five years earlier, however, and his subsequent mounting international fame had now ended that. His gross income had more than doubled, but he had lost Paris. He was as recognisable and as mobbed there as anywhere else. Huge crowds waited outside his hotel all day long, hoping for the briefest of glimpses for the man French journalists called the world's greatest basketeer. You know, few can relate to Michael Jordan's experience of fame and popularity. Not many people can relate to that. I remember when I first arrived in Australia... I hadn't planned to be known in any way. But then I went to play golf after I'd been here about three days. It's the last time I actually played golf five and a half years ago. And, but I went to play golf, and this young guy came up to me just as I was about to tee off and said, I, are you Dave Taylor from Sovereign Grace? And I thought, oh, yes, I am. <laughs> yes, that will be me. And three days in, I remember rushing home to tell Emmett, you'll never guess what, this guy recognized me. And I'm just thinking, they are here my people. You know, I wondered whether how this was going to go. That was the first time that's ever happened in my life, and actually my last time. Even my kids barely know me now. But, <laughs> but for a while, I wondered if I might be famous. I'm not famous at all. Few can relate to Michael Jordan's fame and popularity. But one man who can relate is one Jesus of Nazareth. As we now go through Mark, Jesus is well acquainted with what it is to have crowds following him around. And by Mark chapter 3, verse 7, we once again see him now with a great crowd following him. And so I have three points this morning, three points that are designed to, first and foremost, help us comprehend what's really going on here, both in the crowd, verses 7 through 12, and then the called, verses 13 to 19. And three points that are going to help us, I trust, to discern what this means for us today. Because there is relevance to us today. Our faces are once again in this picture. If we pay attention to what we hear, we'll see ourselves here. And I want you to know from the outset, I think this is a tricky text. I text Brendan at one point in the week just to say, yeah, it's quite hard. And his response was almost, ha, ha, ha. You know, he didn't quite say that, but that's what it was. And it is tricky, so you're going to need to follow me. You're going to need to engage your brains. We're going to need to pay attention to what we hear. We're going to understand what the Lord wants to teach us from here, what Mark is trying to tell us. So three points this morning, and here's the first. Number one, the crowd. This first scene, the first scene of two, follows on from a great confrontation with the Pharisees in the synagogues that we see in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And then the scene changes dramatically in verse 7. As we read, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. See, this day for Jesus, this new day, has begun just like most other days for him. He's not spending every day confronting Pharisees in the synagogue. He seems to spend a lot of days, like he did on the day he called Levi, out by the sea, and most often when you see him by the sea, he's praying to his father. He's realigning himself to the Father's will. He's spending time with the one he loves the most, namely the God of heaven and earth, his own Father, who he dwelt with from eternity past. Well, Jesus here, we see him then by the sea, and this day continues for Jesus like so many other days as well. As we read 
and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. See, by now it wasn't unusual for a crowd to be following Jesus. By now, if we follow along in the Gospel of Mark, we'll see there's often crowds with Jesus, but this one is quite unique. And it's important that it's unique. Mark's trying to help us see it's unique because what he's trying to explain to us is by now, the crowd is huge. They're literally coming from everywhere. So Idumea is 120 miles north of this location. They don't have cars. People are walking 120 miles to see Jesus. Tyre and Sidon is 50 miles south of this location. And that's why Mark then tells us very deliberately in verses 7 and 8 that this is a great crowd. They're not redundant words. He's trying to help us see this crowd is massive. There are thousands and thousands of people coming from everywhere, all around the region and beyond, to encounter and see Jesus. Whilst the religious leaders are on the back of Jesus, whilst the religious leaders are plotting to kill Jesus, the standard Joe Blow in the public is still flocking to see Jesus. He's incredibly popular and they want to encounter him. And in verse 8b, we find out why they're coming. Why are they coming so far to encounter him? We read, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. There are thousands of people by now that have heard all that he was doing. And that's why they're coming to him. And here's just a a sampling then of what he's been doing. He's been casting out demons. Demons have been manifesting in people. They've been declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. And Jesus is not even telling them to shut up, but he's been casting them out of people. The famous one that we talked about before is when he's in a synagogue, when he's in a church meeting just like this. And some dude stands up and starts manifesting. It's a really awkward moment when you think about it. And Jesus just tells him to shut up and get out and they're gone. People have heard all about this. And Jesus has been healing the sick. There have been hundreds and hundreds of people already healed by Jesus in Capernaum. And then there's some standout ones that Mark has drawn our attention to. He's healed a leper, a man that would be classed as totally unclean. He was literally dying by inches of his skin disease. There was a paralytic whose friends brought him in. On a, on a blanket and dug their way through a roof to try and get them beside Jesus. And Jesus said, not only are your sins forgiven, but take up your bed and walk, and he heals him. And then there's this guy in chapter 3 with a withered hand, a hand that just isn't functioning properly, and Jesus gets him to stretch out his hand, and his hand is fully healed. And every time we encounter these healings and these demon possessions in chapters 1 and 2, every time we see that people are amazed, and they cry out, We never saw anything like this before. And they do then what we do today. They're telling everybody all about it. They can't help. News is spreading far. News is spreading wide. And people are coming out now in their thousands to encounter Jesus. And the scene can look pretty darn impressive, can't it? It can look great. I mean, this is Jesus, the King of Kings, and there is a great crowd around him. Surely this is a wonderfully great scene. And yet it's when you take a second look and examine this scene in light of the rest of the gospel that you realize this scene isn't quite as great as it would first appear. Because you see, this great crowd is not interested in Jesus' message or his person or his mission. They're not interested in who he is. 
They're not interested in why he's come. They are flocking from far and wide to see Jesus because of what they believe they can get out of him. The sick are coming to him, not to encounter Jesus for who he is or who he might be. They're coming to him because they want to be healed. The demon-possessed are flocking to Jesus, not because they want to encounter who he is or why he's come or hear his teaching. No, they just want to be healed. This crowd is flocking in their thousands towards Jesus, yes, desperate, but ultimately selfish for what they can get out of him. And we're going to see that as a theme that runs through the rest of Mark. And we're going to see very quickly the great crowds begin to peel off. See, have you ever wondered, how was it if Jesus was so popular that he ended up getting killed with people shouting, crucify him? Where was everybody? Where were they? They were always there for the wrong motives. And these crowds that are now coming out in their droves at this point, as soon as Jesus stops healing them and stops rebuking demons and says, you know what, this is why I've come. I've come to seek and save the lost. And what that means is the cross for me. People start to be offended by that and start to leave. And then when he explains to them, if you want to follow me, it's going to involve you taking up your cross and following me. They're gone. They never signed up for that. They just want to be healed. They want to follow Jesus because what they can get out of him. And so the crowds following the scene begin to peel off Jesus And the crowds here in verse 10, as we see him, they are pressing around him and they are almost crushing him. What Mark is trying to help us see here is there are thousands of people in the crowd all selfishly driven to encounter Jesus because what they can get out of him. And what we have here then is crowd chaos. The Romans haven't had a chance to sort of set up barricades or anything. This is all happening on the spontaneous. There are people flocking around Jesus. They're no longer waiting in line saying, hey, is there any chance you could heal me? They're rushing to him and trying to grab him because they believe if we can just touch him, then I'll be healed. And it's all about me, so come here. I need you for me. This is a chaotic crowd. And in the midst of it, we also have evil spirits falling down before him and crying out to him, declaring him to be the Son of God. Do you get the picture? This is chaos. Jesus by the sea, back against the sea, Thousands of people, not only just sitting, listening nicely, but clamoring to get with him and touch him. And people running in every now and again and throwing themselves on the floor before him, demon-possessed, crying him out to be the Son of God. This is, this is chaos. But behold then the compassion of the Saviour that we see in verse 9. Because in verse 9 we read, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. See, in the immediate, Jesus' concern is that if he doesn't have a boat there, he's going to be crushed. His life's going to be ended because the crowd aren't just going to push him in. They're going to pull him into the crowd and they're going to crush him to death because they're all clamoring over him so much. But that's not his only concern. What you quickly discover as this story continues is Jesus wants them to launch the boat not only because of the immediate challenge of being crushed, He wants them to launch the boat because this boat from chapter 4 onwards is going to become a floating pulpit for him because he's come to teach them. He's come to help them see that your greatest need is not the illness that you've rocked up with today. Your greatest need is not being demon-possessed in a way you've rocked up today. Your greatest need is your sin. And Jesus is going to use this boat as a floating pulpit 
from the side of the shore to be able to communicate to this crowd that your greatest need is not what you perceive it to be. And you need the glories of the gospel and that's why I've come. I've come to take care of the power and the penalty of your sin. I've come to die on a cross so that you may have life and that in abundance. And so behold the compassion of the Saviour. He knows that there are thousands and thousands of people there for completely selfish reasons. I would have been tempted to just think, you know what, you're not here for me, you're here for you. Just leave me alone. But not Jesus. Hey guys, give me the boat. Give me the boat because I need, I need to teach these people something. I need to teach them that there's a greater need than what they perceive. I need to tell them why I've come. I need to tell them who I am. So what we have here is a picture of compassion, but what we have here is an overarching theme, is a picture of chaos. It is the crowds in chaos. And then the scene changes dramatically. In verse 13, look with me. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. The scene one minute is with the crowds and it's chaos, it's busy, there's clamoring, there's pushing, there's pressing, there's crushing. Thousands of people rocking up to be with Jesus. And now the scene goes up on a mountainside. It goes from the sea to the mountainside and from a great crowd to Jesus now just with the twelve. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? One scene is chaos, the other scene is serene. Just wants to encounter these 12 disciples. He wants to communicate something to these 12 disciples. And I have to confess for me, first reading at first glance, this scene from verse 13 through 19 really doesn't appear to be that scintillating. You know, there are certain parts in the Bible that do appear to read a little bit like a phone book. Have you noticed that? Genealogies. And we get to them in our Bible reading, we're like, whoa, whoa, there's a lot of names there. Bloody, bloody, blah, and he died. Bloody, blah, and he died. Yeah, this is awesome. Let's move to the next chapter. You know, there are certain parts in our Bible that don't seem to grab us in the same way. Is that true? And I must admit, when I read this for the first time this week, that is what occurred for me. It read a little bit like a phone book. And you begin to wonder, I wonder why he's even writing this. I mean, out of all the things that Mark could have wrote, why this? I mean, is it just for like the disciples' family and friends? Just so they get a mention and family and friends go, oh yes, that's my boy. You know, is it, why is he doing it? What, what is the point? Why is he writing this in here? What has it got to do with us? Why is he penning this? It didn't appear to me at first that scintillating. But it's when you take a second look and study it deeply that you find this text is truly profound. There's something incredible going on right here. J.C. Ryle says verses 13 through 19 of Mark chapter 3 tell us, an event, tell us of an event in our Lord's earthly ministry which should always be read with deep interest. J.C. Ryle understood there's something profound going on here. So when we read it, we shouldn't just read it like a phone book. We should read it with deep interest. And C.J. Mahaney, I think, expands better than anybody else I could find on this as to why we should read it with deep interest. What is going on here? Here's what he says. The appointment of the twelve is a strategic moment in redemptive history that is profoundly relevant to every Christian. 
For in this moment and on this occasion, Jesus creates and establishes the new Israel, the new community of God, the church. Having been rejected by the Pharisees in chapter 3, verse 6, Luke actually informs us that prior to this moment and event described here in verses 13 through 19, the Saviour spends all night in prayer. Prior to this moment, prior to choosing the twelve, he spends all night in prayer, and his considered choice of the twelve then is filled, filled with redemptive historical symbolism about the twelve, about who the twelve are replacing. For a massive replacement, listen, for a massive replacement is underway by their appointment because the twelve tribes of Israel are being replaced by the twelve. That is profound. See, in the Old Testament, prior to this moment, Israel have been the people of God. Israel as a nation have been the people of God. A nation that God birthed, a nation that God cared for, a nation that God called his own. Prior to this moment, it's always been about Israel. It's right here in these verses that we have before us that Jesus is launching the new Israel, a new community, the church. A nation that will not be built on the colour of our skin or where we're from, but a nation that will be built through faith and faith alone in Christ alone. A nation that will be built from every tribe and language and nation. A nation that will be built and birthed and cared for and called his own by the Saviour himself and will be entered into through faith alone in Christ alone. So this moment, this calling of the disciples is not just a phone book moment. This calling of the disciples has profound consequences and profound historic context. Because it's here that we see the historic establishment take place of the church. Here we see these 12 men called out by the Saviour. Rabbis didn't do that. See, rabbis really operated like a university would operate today. The students pick it. The students look at what the teachers do and then they go, yeah, you know, I'm going to go there. Rabbis don't call the students. But Jesus, as the rabbi, says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to choose 12. I'm going to have you. I'm going to have you. Come with me up the mountainside. And everyone is on the end of an irresistible call of the Saviour. And each of the 12 follow Jesus as their Lord. And these 12 men are a motley crew. I mean, when you examine them, when you examine the names, you realize this, this really isn't all that heroic. Four of them are fishermen. We've already been introduced to them on a number of occasions. Two of those fishermen, James and John, are nicknamed Sons of Thunder. <laughs> I mean, have you ever wondered why that was? I mean, that's, like, that's a pretty cool name. Dave and Emma, Sons of Thunder. Yeah, cool. I mean, it's just quite an attractive name. This is why they're called Sons of Thunder. Because in Luke chapter 9, for example, to give you a flavor of what they're like, the Savior isn't received well in a certain village. And so the Sons of Thunder, James and John, rock up, and their suggestion to the Savior is simply this. We need to waste the place. That's what we need to do. We need to call down fire and brimstone from heaven now. They wouldn't listen. Let's wipe them out. I mean, that's the type of guys that are a part of this initial twelve. Very kind, very caring. Let's kill them. James and John, sons of thunder. We then have Levi, remember that guy, the tax collector? The guy that no one liked, everybody hated, this, this collaborator with the enemy effectively. No one wants to be with him. What do you mean Jesus is pulling him up the mountain as well? And then we have Simon the zealot. 
A guy who's been a member of a radical and violent group that was committed to overthrow the Roman oppression by force. <laughs> this guy's whole life is being given away. I just want to kill the Romans. Let me at the Romans. That's what he's like. This guy is wired. This guy is on speed or something. All he wants to do is kill Romans. It's a Roman. Let me kill him. You know, that's what he wants to do. And then he got six more guys. We have their names, but we really don't know little or anything about many of them. This is a motley crew, mostly guys probably 18 through 22 years old. And yet right here, we have Jesus initiating the beginning of an evangelistic campaign that would eventually lead to me and you. The beginning of an evangelistic campaign that would span nations, that would go from these 12 men to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and that would pass generations, that would make it to Europe and Africa and Australasia, span generations as the gospel would go forward from person to heart, from person to heart, from person to heart. More and more people would be preaching the gospel and sharing it with the next generation. And all that we see here then is these 12 standing there as the start of the campaign that would ultimately, humanly speaking, lead to your salvation. So yeah, this is a profound moment. This is an incredible historical moment. And look who stands at the bottom of it all. Jesus. Because I want you 12. I want to call you to myself. And you're going to start the snowball that sees hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people come to know me as Lord and Savior. So I want you 12, you motley crew, you people that no one would have expected. I'm going to use you and your weakness to take the gospel forward to the nations. Isn't that incredible? So what then does it all mean? The crowds, the called, What does it all mean? What does Mark want us to learn from these two very, very different scenes? Two polar opposite scenes. One, the chaos of the crowd. One, the serenity of Jesus calling the twelve. What does he want us to see? I think he wants us to see two things. There are two things that I think he wants us to learn. And they're as follows. Number one, Jesus is the Christ true son of God see that is the message that I think is placarded over this book from beginning to end Mark's purpose for writing this book is immediately obvious in chapter 1 verse 1 when we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God Mark wants us to see who Jesus is that Jesus is the Christ he's the one we've all been waiting for and he is the son of God And so the way he structures the book then, particularly the first eight chapters, is he's going to give us evidence of that. He's going to give us scene after scene after scene that will reveal to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is him. He is the creator of all. He's the one that can rebuke demons and cast out demons. He's the one that can sort healing issues. He's the one who stands in authority over all things. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And this text is no different. Because in headline, Mark once again wants to point us to the reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
And he does it, if you notice, in two different places. I mean, look with me first of all at verses 11 and 12. Look at the pointer. He says, And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, we're back with the crowd again. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Have you ever wondered why Jesus keeps ordering these dudes to shut up? I mean, it's true, isn't it? He is the Son of God. So you might, you, I mean, why don't you just say, oh, carry on. Yeah, thanks. If you could spread the rumor, that'd be really helpful. Why doesn't he just, why didn't he spread the rumor? See, each and every time, Jesus commands those demons to be quiet. And the reason why he had commanded those demons to be quiet is because quite literally his time had not yet come. See, he knew that any and all proclamations of his messianic titles could all too easily be misunderstood. And if they're misunderstood, then it could very quickly provoke, provoke revolutionary zeal in the public because they already thought they had a Messiah complex and they thought when the Messiah comes, he will overthrow the Romans. So you're him, you're the Messiah, that's awesome, let's get the Romans out. And suddenly you've got revolutionary zeal spreading throughout the known public. And Jesus knew if that happens, I'm going to get a lot of heat very quickly from Roman oppression. And that's not what I've come to do. I haven't come as a political revolutionary. I haven't come to take on Roman oppression. No, I've come to die as a ransom for many. I've come to take away the power and penalty of sin. I've come to die on a cross as your substitute. Tim Keller says it this way, I think most wonderfully. He says, Jesus Jesus did not come to earth the first time to bring justice, but rather to bear it. He came not with a sword in his hands, but with his nails to his hands. And Jesus knew as these demons call out, that you are the Son of God. This could promote and provoke in this very moment a very unhelpful a very unhelpful misunderstanding of who the Messiah would be and the Romans would be very quickly on his back And he knew, I haven't come for that. I've come to take away the sin of the world. And I need time to teach people that. So each and every time a demon manifests itself and cries out, you are the Son of God, the first thing he does is demand for it to be quiet. He doesn't want it getting out yet. His time has not yet come. But note, it's not before they make their declaration of him. And what are we doing now? We're reading a gospel, we're reading a book of Mark in which he's trying to explain to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we have here recorded for us that the very demonic realm are declaring him to be who? You're the Son of God! God in his divine wisdom as he breathes life into the word of God is helping us see through demonic forces who are meaning this moment for evil that they declare exactly who I am. Listen to them. Use them as part of the evidence as you seek to discern who I am as Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't it incredible? What these demons meant for ill, God is using for his good. What these demons meant for ill, Mark is now using for good to proclaim before our eyes that even the demons believe he's the son of God. He isn't just Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of God. 
And it's in verse 19 then that we see the cross come into view. Because in verse 19, we see what Jesus really came to do come into view. As Mark just says this, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. See, Jesus has already stated earlier to his disciples that the bridegroom would soon be taken away. Jesus had already explained that there's no need to fast right now because the bridegroom is with you. The one you've been waiting for is with you. But he'll soon be taken away. And in chapter 3, verse 6, we see the Pharisees already beginning to plot that murder out. As we read, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus has proclaimed the bridegroom will soon be gone. The Pharisees are already plotting how to remove him, how to kill him, how to murder him. And it's in chapter 3, verse 19 then, that a significant human means towards that impending death is introduced to us. A significant means that is sovereignly chosen by the Saviour himself as he sovereignly chooses Judas to be one of the twelve, the one who will ultimately betray him. You know, as you read that, don't you have like one of those he's behind you moments? Because you just want to go, no, not him. He's going to do the dirty on you. But in the way Mark writes this, he's bringing to our attention, Jesus already knew that. He knew exactly that was going to happen. That's why he chose him. Albert Stein writes of his choice this way. He says, Mark wants his readers to know the death of Jesus was no unplanned misfortune. On the contrary, in his sovereign choice of the twelve, Jesus knowingly chose the one who would betray him. The selection of Judas Iscariot was not a tragic mistake or blunder. It was rather a deliberate choice by Jesus to help him fulfill his task, to die as a ransom for many. Thus Mark's readers are reminded that Jesus was fully in control of his death and in all this Judas, the Jewish leadership and the Roman authorities were willing but unwitting instruments in fulfilling the divine purpose. It was a deliberate choice by Jesus to help fulfill his task. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's incredible, isn't it? As Mark sets up this book to help us see Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God. Twice in one text. As he commands the demons to be quiet, but that by that time they've already declared him to be the Son of God. The reason why he's telling them to be quiet is because he hasn't come to take on Roman oppression, he's come to die in their place. And then in verse 19, we have Mark highlighting the means, the human beings by which that will happen, namely one Judas Iscariot. The one who Jesus knows will betray him, but who Jesus calls for exactly that task. It's profound. The Son of God was always in control. And my friends, this should inspire your faith because this is him. 
Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Even the demons prepare the way for him. He's your Christ. He's your King. Mark wants our faith then to be inspired and cultivated afresh, but there's also something else he wants us to learn. He wants us to learn, number two, the way of true discipleship. See, this is a secondary point, and it's significantly secondary to his first point, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and yet it's nonetheless a point that I think Mark wants us to discover, that Mark wants us to see, and it's seen as you compare and contrast the two scenes that Mark has put right together for us here. And so we have the crowd in verses 7 through 12. A crowd that is great, a crowd that is vast, but a crowd that ultimately is only coming to Jesus because of what they perceive they can get out of Jesus. They're pursuing him for themselves. They want to follow him because of what they perceive Jesus is going to do for them. That he's going to heal them, that he's going to help them, that he's going to bless them. And then we go back to back with another scene, which isn't chaos, but is quiet, where Jesus calls his disciples. Men he calls, men he sets apart, and sets apart for communion with him and service. So verse 14, it says, And he appointed twelve, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out. So we have the chaos of the crowd, vast people who just want to spend time with Jesus because what they can get out of him. And then we have the calling of the disciples, men that Jesus initiates with, that Jesus calls, and whom he commands then and instructs then that what it is to be a disciple of me means communion with me, it means to be with me, and it means to serve me. For these men in particular, it meant going forward and preaching and proclaiming the glories of the gospel, literally building churches as they move forward. But we have to understand, although that role is unique, these men nonetheless represent us. There is a model of discipleship taking place right here as they represent us as the church to come. So what do we learn then? Well, we learn that true discipleship True following of Jesus involves far more than mere attendance. The crowds did that real well. Christianity is not about, I want to follow Jesus because what he can do for me. And then being disappointed when he doesn't do what we believe we want be doing. That's what the crowd were doing. True discipleship, true following of Jesus involves far more than mere attendance. No, true discipleship, true following of Jesus involves communion and service. It involves drawing near to the Lord, realizing I've got to be with him. That's what it means to follow him. And then I need to serve him. Because that's what being a disciple, as biblically defined, looks like. We're not called to just attend. The crowds do that. But here Mark is saying to us, listen, be a disciple. That's what he called your name for. So that you would commune with him. So that you would serve him. Not just so that you would hang out at the back with him. He called your name to be with him. And to serve him. James Edwards in his commentary says, The simple prepositional phrase, to be with him, has atomic significance in the Gospel of Mark. 
Discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. A who before a what. To be with Jesus is the most profound mystery of discipleship. And that it is. My friends, discipleship begins not with a task. A discipleship begins with, I am now belonging to Christ. I want to be with Christ. I want to spend time with him. I want him to be my leader, my follower, my rabbi. And Charles Spurgeon then puts the two together so well as he says, we ought to be Mary and Martha in one. We should do much service and have much communion at the same time. And for this, we need grace. I love that. We need to be Mary and we need to be Martha in one. One of the sisters spent time just sitting and communing with Jesus. And Jesus then instructs Martha, you know, you're worried about so many different things. Just calm down. I'm here. Come and be with me. But that doesn't mean then that we just communion with the Lord and we never serve him. That wasn't the point of that story. True discipleship involves both. It means being Mary and Martha. It means communing with the Savior. Understanding you are my King, you are my Lord. Everything revolves around you. And then having communed with Him, it involves serving Him. Being sent out and doing all we can to live in the manner worthy of the calling we've received and living for His glory. So this is a sub-point. Mark's main point is who Jesus is, but I believe he wants us to note what true discipleship looks like, which is the very reason why he puts these stories so close together. To help us see the two different crowds, the two different responses, really modeling for us what we're called to be as disciples. So friends, I want to encourage you then. There is no doubt at all that Jesus is the true Son of God. No doubt at all, as you examine the Gospels, you cannot come up with anything other than he really is the Son of God. He's God incarnate. God did indeed put on flesh 2,000 years ago and come down to earth on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He is the Son of God, and there's no doubt, if you're here today as a Christian, you're here because he called your name. Just like with Levi. Your story might differ in detail, but in headline, it doesn't differ at all. You're here because he saw you running headlong to hell and he stopped you and he called your name. He called you in many ways, like it is in verse 13 to 19, to attend the mountainside with him. To come now and be his follower, be his disciple, not the crowd who are just after what they can get out of him, but a disciple who wants to be with him, I wants to serve him. So my friends, I want to encourage you then, would we truly follow him then as true disciples? That's the response of this text. Would we be like the twelve? Would we live to commune with Jesus, to be with him as our Lord and Saviour? And would we live then in response to serve him? Would we truly be Mary and Martha in one? with the declaration over all what we do then, may I just want to boast about Jesus, about Christ and him crucified. Amen. My friends, we're going to do something a little bit different now. And that I want us to break bread together. You know, I know we have to do this in the worship and that's really neat too. But I think breaking bread at this point as we discuss this text just gives us a unique moment in a couple of ways. It gives us a wonderful moment to 
reflect on who Jesus really is? The Christ, the Son of God? But as you take the bread and you take the juice, it also gives us a moment, gives you a moment to be reminded of who you are. Namely, his disciple, who he's called by name, who he's chosen. And so if the band can come up, and if the stewards can start serving the, the bread and the juice, parents in particular, I'd encourage you to, to monitor your kids in this and oversee your kids in this. And if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior today, don't be embarrassed about that, but please just let the bread and wine pass on. But as the band, began, band begin to play, just take some time by yourself. Take the bread and take the juice and bring to mind this points to Christ and it points to who I am in him. And just quietly then in your own mind give thanks and spend some time with the Lord.